Hey everybody, welcome back. It's me, Matt Tinney, and Jen Earhart. And we just got done doing about fifty-eight takes of a <laughs> oh, no. of a uh, intro that you guys will hear on some of the times when we're not there. It went really well just now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we haven't been podcasting for a while. We're a bit rusty, I think. Yeah, it's a little disappointing, is it not? It's embarrassing. We're like, you know, naive podcasters over here. Yeah, it got uh, a little busy at work, and then Jen just wanted to break up from the podcasting mm. world, and it, it was very upsetting. I needed a break to like get back to myself and my roots. Do you remember the last time that we <laughs> recorded a podcast? Honestly, yeah. it was probably like... What was it? A half year, half a year ago. Who who mm. talks like that? First off, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna throw that out there. Who talks Serial in half killers. years? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Even like as a parent, we talk in months. Like yeah. that's my 13 month old, but we never say that's my half, half year. year. That's something I don't know. That's something I created. It's a new thing. You're, you're bringing <laughs> it's it back. It's gonna catch on. Jen's bringing back half year. <laughs> that's <laughs> what they would year. say when people didn't live as long, right? Or they He's would probably say it in months, actually. That would be more. He's half a year old. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry about that. So what's looking in the future for uh, our project, Jen? Um, we got a lot of things cooking in the kitchen, Matt. <laughs> like what? <laughs> um, so, you know, our, one of our big goals is dissemination and transparency and always sharing what we're doing um, with the CIT ECHO and with APD's Crisis Intervention Unit and with CIT Inc. We got a lot of... We do have a lot going on in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, so we are big into presenting at conferences. So conference season is gearing up again. We have CAT International, the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Then here locally, um, we have the New Mexico Public Health Association. Um, and then another national conference that we're looking at is the National Association of Rural Mental Health. Oh, that's the NARM. NARM. Um, so um, that's going to be in New Orleans too. So Norm's look out, in New, Orleans? New Orleans. Yeah, I didn't realize that. But it's in New Orleans in August. Which wolf? So? Have you been in New Orleans in August? I oh, grew up in Louisiana. <laughs> and as soon as I it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh yeah. It's. I just feel like it's always warm it's, and wet. It's it's wet. I think that's yeah. what's more upsetting is you go outside and like you're immediately just like your clothes are covered. Yeah, I don't think people realize that. If you're not from the no. South, like, even just sitting outside. Yeah. Like, you're just sitting, maybe having a conversation, you're sweating. I try not to go. I'm originally from Tennessee. I try not to go home in the summer. Like, that's, we're Is going in same? March. Like, oh, sitting outside, you just sweat? You just sweat. It's so humid. What about Chicago? Chicago has humidity, but in my opinion... It's kind of a joke compared to Tennessee. And the humidity is only like three months out of the year. Like, they really have long, hot, humid summers in Tennessee. Right. Yeah. I don't feel like we hardly have any humidity There's in New no Mexico. There's no humidity here. We're all going to shrivel up. I'm surprised I haven't shriveled up yet. Look like a raisin. <laughs> You're going to turn into a raisin. I like it. I like to be able to sit outside and not sweat. Yeah, it's nice. That's why I think a lot of there's this misconception. Even before I moved here, I was like, "Oh my god, it's going to be terrible." But it's really so much better than any summer in Tennessee and even sometimes in Chicago. I forgot we had some people out here visiting. I can't remember where they're from. St. Paul. It wasn't St. Paul, but we were talking hmm. about uh, the heat, mm-hmm. and I was like, "But it's a dry heat. Like you're not sweating." They're like, "An oven's a dry heat." 
That was St. Paul. <laughs> was it St. Paul? That was St. Paul. Oh, I, I hope they're remember. listening right now. They better <laughs> be. talking about it behind the back. <laughs> they're like, it's, but it's still like an oven. I'm like, uh, yeah, but it's, like it's not like a nest. wet oven. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's not an incubator, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But we have some cool stuff going on. Oh, on yeah, the, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, on the thing, I was just looking because we have Jeff Swanson coming. Yeah, so one of our really big um, presentations that we have coming up and we've been talking about doing for a long time is to have Dr. Jeffrey Swanson. Swanson, from, Swanson, Swanson, Swanson. Yeah. Um, I'll do it. Dr. Jeffrey Swanson. Swanson, 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 um, Swanson, Swanson from the Swanson. University of Duke. Um, he is an expert about... We got to get through this one. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's an expert on um, mental health, men, mental health, mental health, the law um, about um, mental mental illness and the law, and sort of gun restrictions, gun policy, the epidemiology of how like gun violence spreads, right? Um, which is kind of a different concept for a lot. Of, we don't think of it as. Um, public health thing sometimes but he kind of takes that perspective um so he's going to be out on march 6th i shouldn't see out he is going to be on the cit echo um which again is our weekly sessions that we do um every tuesday from 1 30 to 3 mountain time um so he's going to do an hour and a half long presentation um he's a again a huge expert on this it's a really big deal that we were able to convince him to come on our our show um so march 6th if anyone's interested in attending um please contact me through email this session will be open to um law enforcement public safety but also civilians as well so anyone can attend if they're interested yes which so if you guys are listening mm-hmm. give jen an email at j-e-a-r-h-e-a-r-t at cabq.gov I hope that Jen gets some emails from you guys. I'm looking forward to getting emails. Uh-huh. I don't hope. I'm looking forward to <laughs> But anyway, up next will be a didactic from the Safety Knowledge Network. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. You know, I kind of, I kind of tackled this from an academic perspective, but there's the experts are in the room and logged on as far as... Um, as far as sort of like a deeper understanding of shooting events, casualty events. I mean, certainly, um, and, and thankfully I haven't had proximal experience with that. And so I would really be interested to hear all of your opinions. You know, it could be that you disagree with something in the slides and let me know or that, but, I, but I wanted to start by asking, um, how many of you have had experience, you know, sort of having to report, this type of sensitive material to a media entity or have been approached by the media um, to share certain details or opinions about things? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the last five years probably. <laughs> so is this that you're you're doing media outreach? Um, you know, either I was a first responder at events or we were there after the fact. Again, Chris Chase. And just, just for, the, for everybody who's on, would you mind... Yeah. Like Simon Drobik with the Albuquerque Police Department. I'm usually in field services out in the field, but I'm a weekend public information officer. So when these events take place, they just, they're just very random. They're not Monday through Friday. So if it happens on the weekend, I'll be talking about it, basically. If it's a mass event, all of us will come out and talk about it. French the lead on the big events. So you have a media communications team? Yeah, absolutely. And then just like, what's that process like? Do you guys um, 
discuss before you go kind of public with it, how you're going to do it, and what you're going to talk about? The process of torture? Is that what <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we've had enough experience here in town with mass events like this and major critical incidents that we have a game plan in place and how to push that information. And that does kind of get tripped up sometimes by politics and by uh, detective work and by... Uh, so information being pushed out, we have to embed it and make sure that it's going to the right sources and we're going to good information, bad information, and we should be putting out good information. So, and uh, how often are police officers who are not on the co the quote unquote communications team approached for their own opinions or for that sort of thing? Like you know, I mean, on the field when when an event happens, if we don't get there first, they're for the most part they're pretty respectful because we have a system in place to push that information. Uh -huh. um, and usually uh, field officers are not going to want to talk to me so they're going to call for the, one of the public information officers to arrive on the scene. Okay, so it's quite a bit of you, a few of you have a lot of experience. And then what about on the mental health side? How often are people asking you guys about, oh, was this somebody who had a history and da-da-da, all that kind of thing? Well, everything, this is Niels Rosenbaum. Generally, everything goes through the, the PIO, but when that does come to us, yeah, they all ask us questions and we'll answer honestly, usually trying to dispel myths and misnomers. Okay. And do you guys, how, how often, I bet this has happened where you've given a statement and then you, you turn around and there's some sort of a press report that like has totally misinterpreted what you've said and like... Uh, where it was, where maybe it was intentional, maybe unintentional. Yeah, that's be very unlikely. <laughs> right? Or no. So you make jokes that, with a straight face. That happens, but we're this is not sure Duran That happens, but we've come up with a system that we've been using for the last few months now. That we're we're our own news. We're our own news station now. Uh, so we're providing everything to the public before the media usually gets to it, and we're forcing them to go to us to see what's going on to get the actual details of facts. And that removes their slant or their skewing of information where it may not sound true or may not exactly sound the way it's happening because everybody's seeing it for, from coming from us. And we've even had in the past that they're even using our stories and our links to our Facebook and our social media directly with their stories. So you have your own reporting, like your own media, basically. Pretty much. is what we was what our goal has been trying to do is, is to make everything come from us. Since 90% of the news is about the police in Albuquerque. We might as well be the source of it. So we want to make sure that the, the source of information is getting that information out effectively and accurately so that the, the public is informed, especially when we're dealing with SWAT situations that may have somebody that's unstable and not, not following commands, not following orders, and explaining why we're doing what we're doing so that the public knows there's a danger outside, don't go outside your house, don't start filming us. You can do that later. Um, and it's we've had good feedback from it. Uh, Nicole does a lot of our CPCs uh, with the community in town, and we've had a lot of good feedback from people hearing directly from us versus the old way of it coming from the news and then waiting for the 10 o'clock news to come out and see what happened in their neighborhood. Um, and most of the time it wasn't even correct information or accurate to, to what was actually going on. I'm sorry, CBCs? Maybe please, right now. Or CBCs, okay. Maybe uh, Selena Espinosa and APD, and maybe it helps too where in these massive casualty type situations, they see Joe Blogger on their phone or misreporting data or information. If we're tweeting and reporting at the same time that the public is, it helps um, narrow the narrative so that the true narrative gets out as opposed to, you know, playing the random telephone game of the person on scene who's just got their phone and showing the worst possible as opposed to the actual facts. Right. 
and not to get too off into the weeds, so this will be like the last thing I say about this, but I think especially in the current political and media climate where there's all this concern about like fake news and bots and like accounts that aren't even real and they're like, you know, making up stuff, um, it's probably even more important to have, you know, an official, so if I wish if I had known about it, I would have put it in the slides here, but I guess, I guess most of the folks tuning in know how to access the media accounts and whatnot. And what about those folks who are in rural areas? Do you guys have anything like that um, in terms of um, uh, you sort of standardized ways of releasing your own media? Randy, what do you guys do up there in Rio Riva? Um, I've got pretty much relationships with all the media out here. We send out kind of a mass email, a mass text. Um, and then as far as our local folks, they all know how to get a hold of me directly. So, I mean... We've got a good way of connecting and getting information out here, and it works really symbiotic. Uh, nothing released that we don't have, we don't want released that type of thing. So you have you have relationships. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, we kind of have to. TJ, how about down in Cruces? TJ uh, from Montreal CPD. Uh, usually, we have the just the Nixel system. Um, which we use in the event anything big happens, uh, just to have people stay away. But uh, the PIO is usually the one that sends all that information out. Thank you. Cool. So the first part um, of these slides, a lot of you probably already have a sense of this information. It's more for like mental health providers who may not know as much, but it'd be worth going through it. Um, just click it somewhere. Sorry. Oh, you gotcha. Good. It should start going though. Let me just go bing. Yeah. Okay, so first question for you guys. Do you think violent crime is on the rise in the United States? What do people think? And don't forget guys in the KDT, you guys can write it in the chat. <laughs> Yes. I mean, I wish I had, sometimes we have those the little box come up where you can do the A, B, C, D thing, but here it's sort of just more verbal. Um, I guess no. I got one yes and one no, so we've covered, we've covered, no. anyone for it's about the it's same. It's about the same. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, I, I think what's confusing is I've heard both. Um, I've heard, it's, I've heard both, like on sort of popular media sites. And so not even getting like sort of into the weeds. And so if you're hearing both, it's kind of confusing. Um, okay. What about gun crime? If we were, if we were going to subdivide violent crime further into gun crime, what do people think now? I'll say, I think it's about the same. Okay. Well, about the same. I got one nod. Yes. I'll say now. One no, okay. Well, this is interesting. Okay. I think we're just fighting each other. You're one of those. There's one of those glass half full people, aren't you? <laughs> Depends on who you ask, right? Okay. What about school shootings? What do people think about this? Yes. And actually, this question basically could be like mass casualty events rather than school shootings. Uh, I'm not um, saying no. Yeah. So people are even differentiating between mass casualty and no. Got a yes and a no. Any other thoughts? Okay, yes. Is it it's lumped together? Uh, well, so it's a little bit 
difficult. School shootings are under the umbrella of mass casualty, which in, can include other things like bombings oh. and whatnot. Or, or, or it could be a shooting that's not in a school, but it's still mass casualty, like a workplace or something. Oh. We need a, it's about the same. Okay. It's about the same. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, what do people think about, you know, on average, how many individuals are shot during an active shooter event? The answer choices are one, two to three, six to seven, eight to nine, more than 10. Isn't the definition of these, though, about the amount of casualties? The mass, you mean? But isn't it to be, be but isn't it like to be considered an active shooter? What is the definition of an active shooter? It's a good question. We might get to it. Oh, <laughs> tricky. Teaser. Teaser. Yeah. I'll throw out two to three. Two to three. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'll go six to seven. Yeah. When I, <laughs> I think when I, when I, when I was putting this together, not good two to three. Um, my answer probably was like the. Um, okay. And let's see if there's another one. Oh, oops. There you go. Uh, okay. Then the last question on average, how long does it take for police to arrive at the scene? One minute. One minute. minute. Five <laughs> minutes. Bravo police. <laughs> 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Okay. We're, we're 10 getting minutes. Wow. 10 minutes. He's lost all faith in his career. That's a long I'm going to say five minutes. minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes and five minutes are coming up. Okay. I would guess 15. I would, go, I would have guessed like the, the E to 15. Okay. So here's a slide of um, FBI violent crime. First question. Oh, what's that? There's um, a bunch of. It's not a question. It's just information. Oh, okay. No, there's a bunch of stuff on the screen. Right. Okay, so we'll guess five to six. Oh, five to six, I guess. Five to six. Uh, so, anyways, I can see that one. So you can see uh, a lot of the politicians were saying that there was an, there was a spike in violent crime. This, well, this. So the FBI statistics is weird. Like they come out a year after, so you can't. We we won't know about like sixteen until like the middle of seventeen. It's it's kind of annoying that way. But so then, if you're trying to figure out about sixteen. You have to go with all these secondary sources, and they all say different things. That's really confusing. So the politicians who are saying that there was a spike in 15 are correct, um, in the sense that 13 and 14 were lower. Uh, and this is violent crime. Overall, violent crime doesn't have to. It does, it's not just shootings. It could be muggings or other types of assault. But then, when the, the folks who were saying that. Um, you know, violent crime is really low. How can that be the case? Well, if we look at data over a longer period of time, so like since the 60s, there was a peak in the late and early 90s. And since then, it's come far down. So even though 15 was higher, relatively speaking, um, it, it, it's still pretty low. And those of you who are old, as old as I am, old, <laughs> <laughs> remember, you guys remember what was going on in the late 80s and early 90s? That, I don't think any of us are that old. Right, I know. I know. Nils, what were you dabbling Cocaine. in? Cocaine. I think the crack epidemic was around that time, right? Like a pretty big spike in the homeless population starting in the 80s and progressing to the 90s. There's a lot of mental health services history there as well, with um, a lot of the uh, community mental health centers shutting down. 
uh, an emphasis on privatization, uh, not as much community resources, state hospitals shrinking, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there was a spike there. And then since, you know, the, the crack epidemic, the large city gang epidemic started to get better uh, in the mid nineties, you see it, the crime rates come, come down really to like seventies, I guess, if you were to draw a line all the way across. Mm -hmm. um, so, so why do you think, um, this is like a weird, this is a really open-ended question that will be hard for you to tell what I'm thinking, but uh, we'll just go with it. Why do you think that all of us had such different answers to these questions? Like these graphs are pretty clear, right? Media. Yeah. Media. Um, so what, what do you all, what's your hypothesis as far as what, um, what the general public thinks about crime right now? It's awful. Yeah, it's all over the place. It's on a rise. It's all over the place. It's, um, it's performed by people of color. Well, there's, yeah, there's that part. I don't know if we really get into that too much, but that certainly could be a part of this. Um, and would you think that they would be thinking that we're safer now than we've ever been? Like, no. more dangerous now? Uh, okay. Right. And um, so we'll, we'll move forward here. I think it really depends on where you live, too. I mean, being in central Albuquerque, where you see everything happen on a daily basis, is different than being out, living out in the country of Nebraska, where you hardly see anything happen at all. And there's there's a totally different lifestyle there than there is here. Out, somebody lives out in the farm can leave all their stuff out overnight right. and not worry about it. No one's going to go and steal their, their cows or anything at night. But you do that here in town, your bike and motorcycle's gone, your bike's gone, your car's gone on the same night. Right. So those things are happening in different demographics of where you live, too. Absolutely. And I, it's fascinating. And I don't think I have demographics based on if you live rural versus urban. Are you more like less likely to feel like you're safe? I'm wondering if cable news penetrating into the heartland changes that or not. Or if you're living in the middle of Nebraska, do you feel like I'm okay with my neighbors, but I'm really worried about a global event or something? It's really, really interesting. I, I don't well, have data I, I on that. I can't speak to farmland, but um, regardless of what part of town you're in, West Side, Rio Rancho here, um, or... I recently lived in South Florida and then worked at an inner city in Arkansas and lived in a good part, good part of Arkansas. Um, but no matter any of those parts, people feel like it's so dangerous everywhere. And I just don't feel that way. Um, but people I talk to are getting more and more worried and concerned. One of my friends lives in a nice area of, on the west side and her neighbor got robbed. And so now she's terrified to go anywhere because it's everywhere. So, so you're, you're seeing it cut across demographics and areas. And, yeah. I mean, certainly, so there's perceptions of crime. And then, and then I think um, off, what Officer was talking about is um, there's a certain percentage of people who really are in danger a lot of the time. But I don't think she like is. I think she put one event right. with what she sees on the news constantly together and now it's like well it's everywhere and it's so dangerous here so some people have a misperception other mm -hmm. people have an accurate accurate perception because they're in danger yeah um so we got to this question of what is an active shooter event or a mass casualty event and how is it defined by the fbi so what they what they've done the fbi they have um this really 
uh, impressive study. They, they took 13 years worth of, uh, of shooter events and they looked at sort of like um, certain trends and things. And uh, this is how they define active shooter in their gigantic study. So one or more persons engaged in killing or attempt to kill multiple individuals in an area occupied by unrelated individuals. Um, further, um, and then there's, it's not just like a thing where one person has a vendetta against another person and then that happens. It's more like there's, there's sort of collateral damage and that's okay. Um, and that the primary motive appears to be um, trying to harm a large number of people rather than, oh, I was trying to commit a burglary and people got in the way. So, it, so if you're looking at like really the, the crucial part is what the primary motive is. Um, so gang-related shootings are, ex are excluded to the extent that they can be so that they can get data about this other phenomenon that they feel like is more specific. Um, so unfortunately, although violent crime has gone down, this is that FBI data from 2000 to 2013, um, unfortunately, it looks like uh, mass casualty, this is active shooter incidents, are going up. Um, you know, could it be a blip? Maybe. Uh, 13 years is pretty good data. Uh, and then if you look, the bottom graph is casualties. So. So, so that's not a misperception. I think that's how these things get twisted together. Yes, it is safer now than it has been since the 90s, but this weird phenomenon of like just going in and harming a bunch of people seems to be uh, certainly not getting better and, if, and possibly getting worse. So where do these things happen? Um, unfortunately, like 16, 17%, if you look at the top left education, little bar graph next to education, uh, about 17% of these are happening in schools from pre-K to 12. And then if you include colleges and things, um, that's about 25%. Then there's a bunch that happen like in the workplace, commerce, government, uh, residences, and other sorts of things. <clears throat> because I'm a child psychiatrist, we oftentimes think more about the schools first. Um, I thought this was interesting. The bottom graph uh, shows what type of instruments were used. And 60% basically you had a pistol. Um, 8% were like shotgun, 26% rifle. Why do I think that that's interesting? Because um, there's a lot of talk about these really high magazine, uh, like if we just take, if we just got rid of assault rifles, everything would be better. And I mean, as someone who's not a hunter or a gun owner, I wouldn't fight you on that. Um, but pistols are still accounting for 60% of these. So, so that wouldn't really solve the whole problem. You know, it may solve part of it. I think some of the, also some of the, the mass casualty events where there's the largest number of people and the highest media coverage are ones where there's like a high magazine capacity, assault rifle type gun used. And so I think we tend to start thinking like, this is the big problem. And maybe it's a part of the problem, but not the whole part problem. Was there a comment from someone else? Maybe just some coughing. Um, Okay, so some slightly better news uh, is that the mode uh, response time, which is sort of like saying the most common response time is three minutes, which I thought was great. I thought 15 minutes was realistic, but three minutes is way faster than I thought, which is average 
uh, police response time. And then the mode in terms of the number, number of people shot is 18. So we hear about these awful like Orlando type things and you know, we tend to think, oh, the mass shootings are going up. But if you look at Orlando as one of those small one blips, like it's like the one thing that happened over these 13 years, and then way, way, way more of these sorts of things are like two people or three people. Is Of course, it'd be better if no people were getting shot. Um, so I'm not trying to say this is some sort of like good thing, but um, I think compared to my perception based on basically just regular mainstream media, my perception would have been it's a higher number and that please take longer. Um, I thought that that was somewhat reassuring um, data. I wrote a paper on uh, the stuff that we're about to go through. If you want to look at it, um, if, you value, if you value your time, you probably don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, scratch that from the record. Uh, and then I think some of you guys are writing a paper together too right now for one of the journals, which is yeah. pretty cool. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to read that. So does media um, re reporting impact public perception? And you guys were starting to say that you think that it does. Uh, so despite the fact that violent crime has decreased, there was a Gallup poll in 2016, 70% of Americans think that crime is getting worse nationally. Um, and that would be domestic crime. And the majority of respondents think that crime is extremely serious at this time. Um, and uh, there were some um, there were some studies done in the 90s, one in the early 90s, one in the late 90s, um, that suggests that the way that we perceive victims, criminals, deviants, law enforcement is, I mean, the way that we get information about this is the media. So, so it goes it goes to say sort of that that would influence us. Um, and it's really hard to measure, but um, I found a study and I could once and I couldn't find it again, so I couldn't put it in here. It was a really cool study, um, but it was in sort of an obscure journal. Uh, I think it was in like a law journal, but they looked at um, how news has been reported like from when it was just press to black and white TV, to color TV, to more channels, to cable news, to now like Twitter and all that. And the study that I'm talking about suggested that the percentage of media that focused on violent crime has like expanded quite a bit. When it was just print, there was a lot that people were reading about in their local paper about uh, the mayor's thinking about opening a green space on Main Street, you know, or the fire department needs some funds or something. Uh, and, and now with the type of media uh, coverage, there's been an increase in uh, the percentage of time spent on violent crime. I wish I could have re relocated that study, but I couldn't find it. Um, but there's another study, and it's 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 an older study. It's from '81. So a lot of this a lot of this criminology stuff you have to look kind of further back to get good studies because they're not coming out as frequently. Um, but they looked at uh, at 99 studies in this um, in this article. Um, and they did sort of like a meta-analysis where you look at you combining the data from a bunch of studies. Basically what they what they found at this time, which is the 81, is that violent crime is highly overrepresented um, in the media and by the media. Um, this paper also suggested that um, um, it says the amount of crime depicted has little relationship to the amount of crime. 
So you might you might see like 30% of the news is on violent crime that you watch that evening, but but the actual violent crime occurring is like 1% of the total crime in the city or something like that. Um, and then they, there was an interesting assertion in this paper that viewing um, violent media coverage makes people more likely to behave aggressively. That I would say the data is still sort of mixed and not that strong. I wouldn't go I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but the but the folks writing the paper felt like they they had enough to say that. But this is a different type of a paper. So this one was published a little bit more recently in two thousand one, and they looked at um, uh, fifty years of news reporting, and uh, and they looked at how close is the news reporting based on scientific and actual observable fact versus sort of like conjecture and like opinions that are, are not based in fact. And what they found is that um, basically over time recently, there's been more of like a, a sort of disconnect between factual material and um, actual reported material. There's been a lot more like sort of like opinions and things of that nature. Um, so the next, the next part where we kind of go into where I have a little more expertise, which is child psych. Um, but what, what do you guys think other than, um, other than changing the way that we view the world? Um, how do you think that viewing, uh, let's say, heaven forbid, there's a mass casualty event somewhere tomorrow and CNN is doing like, you know, 72 hours around the clock, like showing everything, the guns and the explosions and the 911 calls and everything. What do you think viewing that material, let's just say someone's just sitting in front of their TV and just consuming this for days. Like, what do you think that would do to a person? Other than the fact that it would make you think, we already covered that, it makes you think the world's less safe. But do you have any sense, you have any thoughts or ideas about what else it might do to you? Or what the data might show? Make there's you feel no, there's mortal. no wrong answer, huh? Make you feel more mortal, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that could be a glass half full thing too. Like, I better appreciate what I have because who knows what happens tomorrow? I didn't think about that. Maybe that's because I'm not a glass half full person. <laughs> well, yeah, that, person either that or a sense of that, that your your future is like kind of less secure, right? I mean, right? You could hey, I need to act on the time I have, or um, life is not really going to act last very long. Or being more like fearful kind of thing. Yeah, yeah I've seen it um, when I was teaching high school and anything like that happened on the news, bombings and stuff like that or shootings, the teenagers were always suddenly, you know, is that going to happen to us? And the more that they would show about it, it when is that going to happen to us? That's going to happen here next. And you'd always have to calm them down. So it would, they always internalize it and personalize it no matter where it happens. So you're almost describing not quite paranoia, but sort of like, like a feeling like I'm not safe. Yeah. And the sense of that there's something impending, there's something coming. And a lot of the ways those national cable news, the 24 seven, 72 hour coverage does it when they have nothing to say, you know, it's like I'm standing in front of this storefront here where nothing is happening, but stay with me. And they start showing you previous attacks, you know, until they get more information. Right. So it begins to feel like, well, it happened somewhere else. It was similar to this. It's going to happen again. And, and it does tend to scare people. Okay. I think the word you use, paranoia, I think would make you paranoid. Okay. I think a lot of times, especially, I can only speak on the law enforcement side, but when there's a lot of officers shot in the same week, 
Oh, man. And it's all that's popped up on social media, especially if you are on social media as law enforcement, you follow a lot of law enforcement communities. All of a sudden, it feels like almost law enforcement center. Yeah. Even though it's sporadically everywhere. But that would be terrible. I, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I could see that being really hard. I think it depends on your audience, too. I mean, it depends on who's watching it. It might... You know, I might get somebody in paranoia to start wondering what else is going to happen here, what's going to happen in my home city, what's going up and down the street, and then it might have a trigger to somebody else. Well, that's going to make me be a cop now. I want to go join the military. I want to do this, and we're trying to make a difference. Right. So it really depends on who is watching this and what their exposure is. Absolutely. And the flip side of that, a lot of people we deal with on the streets, people get paranoid and they go out and they try to take matters in their own hands and self-medicate, do other things. We see it all the time with them just doing rash things that normal person would do because they saw something on the TV. Yeah, or like, yeah, the other thing that I think of is is feeding, like it makes conspiracies seem more plausible because you just feel like uncertain. I'm thinking about like that pizza shot where people thought there were like prostitution going on and like some guy during the campaign went and shot like a bullet into like, but didn't shoot anybody. But like, if you're that scared about the world, you might start to feel like, you know, everything's kind of caving in on you. And, you know, there probably is a prostitution ring in there and I should go take matters in my own hands or whatever. What uh, pizza? That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was the one it, Yeah, it was, it was. It's not local? No, no, it was like, it was on the East Coast and there was, they thought that there was some sort of like, Hillary Clinton had a child prostitution ring in, uh, in this in this pizza shop and the like pizza. Chuck E. Cheese, what? No, it was just a <laughs> local pizza child. There's a local mom and pop place, but the guy I was talking about who owned it, like, um, there was like a kid's birthday party going on around that time, and just like his whole like business has been destroyed because of like a Twitter bot, you know. This was uh, actual fake news. Yeah. Wow. Actual fake news, but anyway, so. I think too, there's like an identifiable people group that's been targeted, or the shooter themselves was an identifiable person who had like was affiliated with a religion or a race. It can lead people to feel, you know, targeted in that way, right? Um, and kind of risk that radicalization of like them versus us feeling. Right, right. Kind of in the same way that if like the Brotherhood of Police is being sort of isn't, you know, you could, I could see that happening as well. Where the same time you have the media that shows and puts that, mm-hmm. that thought process in people's right. heads because they start pulling, like you said, pulling things out from like years ago that happened and joining up something current right. that had nothing to do with it. Right. And now you get all this panic in the city because they just want a story. And that's their main purpose is the story. I think we see that oftentimes with our officer-involved shootings. So we'll have an officer-involved shooting and then KOAP is the worst about it. They put all the last officer-involved shootings for the last five years preceding or post that news coverage so then when we go to community meetings the community is like well all apd is shoot people we're like no look at the statistics they've gone dramatically down right right so no yeah so i think we should move on but you guys are basically like giving this whole talk for me like (laughs) everything that you've mentioned is is on a slide somewhere so um so if we look at kids which is my group um there were about a dozen studies that i could find from September 11th to the Boston Marathon bombings. And what they did is they looked at how much media are these kids consuming following this and doesn't have an impact on them. And there were a few with adults as well. Um, and traumatic stress, for those of you you know who aren't, who aren't using the lingo every day, is basically when you're exposed to something traumatic and you start having nightmares or flashbacks about it, um, you're really vigilant, you feel like you have to watch your back, you like jump at something that's really kind of like a loud noise, 
um, maybe you'll start thinking to yourself, like, you know, like I just heard a noise, someone's coming to get me. And then you also would have like avoiding certain situations because you don't want to go out. Like you'd be like, oh, I'm not going to go out because I don't feel safe. Um, so that's what traumatic stress means. Uh, and so there was this very interesting study that I think it may be an overstatement, but I was, I was amazed to see this data. So, uh, and I have these references at the end in case you guys want to see the studies, but um, Holman and his group found that, so people who were watching six or more hours of this, so it's a lot, right? This would be considered excessive media viewing. Six or more hours of bombing-related media coverage per day were more likely to have acute stress disorder than those people who were actually at the bomb. Um, that was really shocking to me to see, because I wouldn't think that anything in the media could get you close to having been there. Like if you're at the Boston Marathon bombing, I think that would be really traumatic. And no, no amount of TV I could watch would measure up to that. But according to this study, if you watch that much, granted it's excessive, um, you're more likely to report that than people who are even there. So I wouldn't go, I wouldn't conclude that, but I would say, okay, I mean, apparently there's an impact. Um, and then more of the other studies suggested that um, if you were actually there, then watching media increased the likelihood you would get acute stress. Um, it, following Virginia Tech, I think there's some feed issues with this, this coming up here. Um, they looked at kids who watched more than three hours of media exposure from that shooting, um, and that correlated to more uh, PTSD, depression, and anxiety symptoms. Then there was a really large study where they looked at 49 articles um, after 15 mass shootings, and they suggested some, but it was limited evidence that there was um, increased fear, decreased perceived safety if you were watching a lot of uh, media. Um, Finland, there was, that, there was a really bad attack there a couple years ago um, on a school, and those people who watched a lot of media-related coverage felt worse emotionally. Um, uh, but that, la that effect was sort of like it was weak evidence. That's what the attenuated with the confounding factors mean. Um, so correlational data means that instead of saying that you can prove uh, that watching a lot of media makes you paranoid and all this, it means that they're associated, but we don't necessarily know why they're associated. Um, so kind of like you get a little bit into this chicken and egg debate, which is what one of the officers was saying. I forget again. Duran was saying about, depends on who's watching it. So one way of looking at this is, if any person watches tons of this stuff, you're going to feel really crappy afterwards. Pretty safe to say. How crappy is the question? Um, but then the other question is, are there certain people who are specifically at risk for viewing this type of thing based on, what do you guys think? Why would you be specifically at risk for viewing this type of thing? Survivor of something traumatic. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who's just been around violence where it re-traumatizes. Anything else that you can think of? I mean, I would think some, maybe someone with a behavioral health disorder. Right, yeah. If you already have psychosis right. and you're already paranoid, this could feed into it. If you're already anxious, it could feed into it. If you had, like, if it was a member of your religious group or um, somehow you identified with it more, you could be at risk for it. 
And I think what we're not great at doing right now is necessarily knowing specifically who it is who's going to have like an adverse outcome when they're watching this. Who, who, who is it going to be like they can watch this all day and they're totally fine. And who should we really kind of be worried about that when they're watching this, it could be, it could be worse. For them. So then, I mean, I think the last part, so the, the, uh, the middle portion was just sort of, you know, is, is this type of media coverage good? And the short answer is probably not. Um, and that there are certain groups who might be at, at risk more. So, so the, then the question is like, what do we do about this? How, how can we work together um, maybe to identify people who are at risk? that start as a parent just kind of like almost not allowing your kids until they're of a good age to to see certain types of news to see it or definitely definitely and and like basically we're to the point now where kids probably need to receive media curriculum in high school um but but let's say it's not i have the child thing because i'm a child but let's say like we're talking about the work that you guys do so you're out with the CIT team or coast or and how would you identify people where you're like I probably should check on this person because they might not respond well to this I think we have the opportunity now the way the social medias and the way that everybody gets their information from just virtually everything to educate the public um, we try and do that as much as we can through the CIT unit, through the PIO office and through other agencies that we work with and trying to educate people Things are actually going on at Albuquerque versus every single TV or something like that. Mm -hmm. Things that we're actually currently doing, such as a SWAT situation or whatever the case may be, so that people understand that there's a danger, but we got it taken care of, we got it handled, just do what we ask you to do now and then come out and ask it on. And we've seen a lot of a big turnaround with the education um, because people now understand why we're doing what we're doing a little bit better than maybe they did in the past. Um, and they may not fully know why what we're doing because we're not going to disclose all the information at one time, but it gives them a little bit of Something to think about. Okay, cops are outside. They'll take care of it. Mm -hmm. I'm safe for now. Um, Do you guys chime in about national events as well, or not or now, more local? Every now and then, yeah, okay. anything that involves an officer, like an officer down, uh, we do post that on our Facebook. And we try and get like, the public to understand that this is not just something that's happening here; it's happening all over. Um, but we try at the same time, like uh, what we were saying earlier, is that we try to educate everybody that this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing here in town. And this is what your neighborhood is dealing with here. Nicole has a lot of contacts with the community with the stuff that she does, and she's able to give this message out to the community even easier than, than I can being in uniform because she's not in uniform. But she works with us every day, every single day, and she sees what we do. So, so civilian to civilian, it, it comes off a little bit easier than it does from a cop in uniform yeah, to civilian yeah. because now that's the authority figure is not there. Um, so she has a lot of, a lot better delivery than we do uh, sometimes with some people. And I think as a team, not only the PIO team, but individual departments have really good relationships with either crime victims or advocate groups or the district attorney's office. So if something really important is going to come out and we know it's coming out and can't hide it or control it, we'll either let the victims know, the families know, the DA's office, this is coming next month to let you know before you see it first or hear about it. And I mean, even the officers or homicide detectives are good at letting the victims or families know. That's good. So they have time out. to process it before right. the 
outcry and all this other. So Matt Tamith AP, I had a I actually wrote this one as a question that came up with here. Is there something that you guys have seen, and this is more for you guys as providers, that we can do to, to make a difference? Because what it sounded like from your previous stuff is if someone is a victim of a crime or a witness of a, of a violent act, I should say, and then if it's on TV that they're more prone to having ongoing issues, be it PTSD, stress, or anxiety, is there something as us as law enforcement that can actually help stop that? Like, I mean... Can we include it in our training to like, you know, make officers aware, like, hey, if you're out with a victim of a crime and you think there's somebody in news, make sure you tell them not to keep watching the news and seek treatment. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, we train even the public at, at the Citizens Police uh, Academy, and a lot of them are victims of crime, and that's how they got into this, and they brought this up before. Or is this something that maybe we should make like a checklist that we hand to a victim of crime with like resources, or how do you guys... What is an effective means as us as first responders can actually make an initial change in something? I have a I have a slide at the end that has some of that stuff, but before, but we we could just talk about it now, um, and I'd be interested in getting everybody else's opinion. Who's you know in mental health? Um, I think some of the stuff we talk to the kids about, like after something like this happens, is definitely limiting the media coverage, um, and including the so if you're dealing with an adult we would talk to the parents. You may talk to loved ones or family members about not ha about kind of being careful the kinds of conversations you have around them. Like if I've got a psychotic uncle, maybe I don't have my conversation about the world is ending around the psychotic uncle kind of stuff, the really like catastrophic. Right. Um, and then there's a bunch of stuff about like how to increase the family support, the community support, the mental health support. Um, one of the things we'll recommend to people is, is to get back into their life as soon as possible. So that could be whatever, if it's a kid, it's going to school, going to work, going to your church, um, whatever your activities or hobbies are. Um, and it, it, the longer you kind of stay out of that, uh, sometimes the worse the, out, the outcomes can be. Those are some things that come to mind for me. Anything else that you guys can think of? I think you're uh, like a checklist is a great idea. I'm working right now with uh, the district attorney's office for the victim advocate group. But to also talk to them and tell them while they're on the scene, have a family member with them, have a checklist of what to expect. Um, there's a lot of things I think that we can work on and that we are starting to work on as far as helping those victims of a scene. I mean, just from a personal standpoint, you know, when my son was killed a year and a half ago, it was the worst experience I think you could ever go through. And seeing um, not only myself process it as a mother, but seeing my daughter process it as a sister, and seeing all the students process it as best friends and people at Manzano, it was really hard. And I think even now, you still see the butterfly effects of things that maybe they could have known up front, but we weren't really good at yet as a department or the district attorney's office. Um, but I've seen it get a lot better in the last year and a half since you've seen all of these, right. you know, shootings happen right. and, and murders. And so it, it's getting a lot better. I will say that even, even with this office here, um, you know, Selena, ourselves will reach out to the victims of violent crime, the parents, um, when their kids get murdered or spouses, right away and let them know what to expect or when press releases are happening or try to kind of guard the press from 
going at the family right away before other things are released. We've started to condition the media, and I wouldn't I wouldn't tell that to the media, but we have. So like with the Victoria Martin's family, no, not hers, um, the three kiddos that were shot. The Four Hills. When they were having that funeral, we specifically said, please do not attend the funeral. If you're going to attend the funeral, please stay in this area. And then Simon gave sound only in that area so that they didn't have the access to the family and were hopefully not filming the family up close and personal. And then those stations that I hate to say this, but we were literally conditioning them. The stations that obeyed kind of that guideline, we gave them an extra story that was exclusive right after that, saying thank you for doing that and for being respectful to our community. Well, I think because that's, you did that. That's Here's great, because you're you're acknowledging the fact that they have First Amendment rights, they have freedom of speech, and they have they have to report the news. But you're kind of like giving them a reward where it could be a win-win. I think it's a great idea. Let me, let me zip through these just to make sure there's not something I'm missing, and then we can come back to some of these um, uh, some of these good topics and questions. So the, the, the CDC for the United States actually has, you can Google, um, a media reporting set of guidelines for suicides um, because of the, the concern that there's a contagion effect with suicides, particularly um, youth suicide, small community suicide, celebrity suicide. Um, and so, I mean, it's very rare to see suicide reported in the, in the media unless it's a celebrity. Um, and, but there's no such guide from the CDC for homicides or mass shootings, unfortunately, as of yet. Um, and um, FBI spokespersons, there's been a number of them who've come out and given statements after an, an event that uh, media fascination with perpetrators for those people who are motivated by sort of infamy or um, uh, sort of like wanting to create a splash, so to speak, um, just showing more and more and more um, material of the killer, doing these like, you know, psychological biopsies into who was this killer and blah, blah, blah. It just, it could only serve to perpetuate uh, this in other people rather than, um, rather than focusing on other more important things. It was really hard to find data on this though, uh, because the confounding factors were so strong. So you could show, there was one study that said two weeks after a shooting, it's more likely if there's a lot of media coverage that another shooting will occur, like mass casualty event. However, the, the, st the statistics they used were criticized by a lot of groups as not being sound. So there's, there's not a lot of great data. But like, what do you get out of showing a lot of stuff about the killer. Like, what's the point? Even if I don't have the data to say it's a bad idea, you know, do I need the data to say <laughs> jumping out of this window right now is a bad idea? Sometimes <laughs> things are just obvious. Um, so the FBI joined Texas State University and they started this Don't Name Them campaign. And then there's a similar no notoriety campaign after um, Aurora, Colorado. And the point of these campaigns was to focus less and less on the shooters or the whatever they are, like. Uh, the people who are perpetrating the crimes, and more on the victims, the survivors, the heroes, with stories of resiliency, healing, hope, and togetherness, that in the sense that it would disempower, and that's what happens in suicide. So if we have a suicide in town or a high school or a Pueblo, and we're consulted with in terms of what to do, um, we try as much as we can to not glorify the, su the suicide, but rather to focus on these other elements. Um, 
So um, it looked like it was working. Um, Anderson Cooper stopped saying the name of perpetrators, you know, after Aurora, Colorado. And then there was the, um, the two reporters were killed in Virginia and CNN decided that only once an hour would they show something about the killer. Uh, and then on the law enforcement end, there was the sheriff in Oregon who refused to um, uh, release the details of, of the shooter um, initially. And eventually it got leaked. Um, but it was about a good three days where he was just saying, I'm not going to say who it was, which I thought was pretty interesting. It looked like we were kind of on a, you know, on the right path, going in the right direction. But then in Orlando, we kind of slipped back here. Um, James Comey, we all know who he is. Uh, said um, after Orlando, you'll notice I'm not using the killer's name and I will try not to do that. Part of what motivates sick people to do this kind of thing is some kind of twisted notion of fame and glory. I don't know that I would make it that simple, but um, that's what he said. So he urged media outlets to do the same, but um, Orlando was crazy. I mean, if you watched any of that stuff, it was like everywhere and it was super graphic and nobody was holding back for that. And they were really into like who the killer was and then the F I thought it was kind of hypocritical. So the Justice Department and FBI, after they're telling everyone, like, don't like go crazy with this stuff, let's focus on positivity. And was, there was a lot of public pressure. So then they, re they released the 911 transcripts of the call because there was supposedly some sort of like jihad or ISIS thing. Like, I don't know what that does. It shows you people in incredible distress. Uh, and I mean, maybe there's like one word in there that has a political implication, but the FBI is the one who's telling us not to do this. And now like, you know, so I think we kind of slipped back there a little bit, unfortunately, after it looked like we were headed in the right direction. Um, so what can we do? Um, exactly what you guys are doing, basically. This idea locally we could talk about that continuous graphic coverage uh, could be harmful to a certain segment of the population. Um, certain folks could get acute stress and anxiety and depression from it. Um, there's a possibility of a contagion effect where you're increasing the likelihood that this happens again. Um, so those are some reasons. What can we do? We can work, uh, which you guys are already doing. That's awesome. Um, on um, what type of information should be released, what's needed. Um, there is some sort of uh, responsibility for the media to report that events happen, but what, what type of information should they limit? Um, and um, uh, how can this be done without, I mean, they need their ratings, they need, they also have a right to say whatever they want. People have a right to use their phone and film whatever they want, but how can we do this in a more responsible way? Um, and the other thing that I do more of is like working with a school or other public places just to make sure that there are protocols in place for what to do before and after an event. Like that. I'm sure you guys have plenty of those in your office. Um, a lot of schools, I'm surprised though, when I go to rural communities and talk to them, don't really have a protocol in place or a crisis plan. And, um, and then there are other schools that are going to the extreme of having people come in and pretend that they're gunmen and then the kids are like, ah, you know, teachers are like, ah. So, you know, there's a lot of variance, I think, in how we're doing what? this. And, um, not, not, do you like not tend to active shooter drills? Sort of, not as dramatic as I did. Okay. <laughs> but, but to it's a point a where, they, to get shot. where the kids were, um, we're actually really scared. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of there's still a lot of work that we have to do to um, to come to some sort of a consensus on how to do this training, how to put prevention in place, how to deal with the triaging, blah blah blah. Um, 
how can we on the mental mental health side identify people who are at risk of doing these sorts of things um, so improve our risk assessment um, and, and threat assessment so that's people that I see in my clinic that's people you see through CIT is there a way that we can get a sense that they're amping up or um, or sometimes are we just kind of like we had we didn't see that coming um, and then this gets back to the last qu the question that that you asked about what can we do and I think making sure that um, traumatized communities or families have resources that they need. Um, so making sure that there's enough providers that we can refer them to somebody who could help them out, uh, which in Albuquerque is actually an issue, like there's not enough providers. So sometimes it can be hard to, to find, I mean, it doesn't help a family to say you can get an appointment in three months with someone. So just out of curiosity, when you're saying providers, because we have people on right now from uh, Las Cruces, from Rio Riva County, um, we have federal U.S. probation. They're all over the state. More when you say provider, if they're out with somebody, because when you say Albuquerque has no resources, and you're talking <laughs> to like Rio Riva, right, right. we have all the resources. Right. So what would that mean by provider? If they're out with somebody, who is it that they should kind of like, hey, check in with? Right. It could. It just depends on what's available in your community. It could be um, a primary care doctor. Usually, they're pretty good about getting people in for something like this. It could be a school counselor if it's a kid. It could even be a clergy person. Um, it could be a social worker. It could be a family therapist. Really, like anything is better than nothing. If you were, if we were, if we were in the, you know, uh, if we were in New York City or something, you would say have them see like a grief or trauma specialist in terms of a therapist. Have them see a psychiatrist in case they need some sort of medication, but but we have to use whatever resources we have. Right. So I would say anybody in really healthcare is probably the first umbrella, and then you could go. Do you guys have any other thoughts about that, Nils or Dan, Nicole? Any other thoughts about who who you, like who you might identify? No. Yeah. I mean, community leaders outside of healthcare, right? Yeah, and in the case that it's. Um, I mean, even the family, helping to mobilize the family. That might be a little bit outside of the scope, uh, but you know, um, anything that people can do, even to just whatever the natural supports are that are already in place. Um, Advocate groups are always a good thing. I mean, they have handouts, websites, right. people with personal experience, and that goes anywhere from you know survivors of homicide to rape victims. I mean, domestic violence. I want to make sure you guys see the resource on the bottom. And I didn't include a link. Sometimes I do. But that stands for the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. A lot of this stuff applies to adults, too. But the cool thing about this website is you can go into it and you can search by traumatic things. So you can look for, like, natural disasters compared to community violence, compared to, like, sexual violence, compared to... Um, like there's a, you can search on based on what kind of trauma the person had and then they have a bunch of free handouts and things for um, like school providers so you can search based on the trauma type and based on what kind of provider you are and they'll give you free handouts um, just like little toolkits and ways that you can uh, can work with families and, and adults so um, yeah and I think uh, I think basically like um, Getting back to that, uh, establishing a routine for people, I think, is, is really crucial.